All that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. Tolkien. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Lao Tzu. There are no shortcuts to any place worth going. Beverly Sills. It's summer, so pack your bathing costume and your umbrella. It's time for us to go out and about in this August edition of Look Here. With me today are Barney, hello, Evelyn, hello, and Christine, hello, and this is Pam Ayres, the seagull. The seagull sits like all his breed, pink of leg and bony kneed, yellow eye prospecting hard for any tourist off guard. Down below, a pleasant scene: a family by the sea washed clean, with fish and chips upon their laps. Dad stands to take some family snaps. Before his lens, a creature flies. Father can't believe his eyes. Enraged, he bellows, Oh my God, a seagull's had me battered card. A vile curse pollutes his lips. The bugger's had me fish and chips. On high, the bird, triumphant, sleek, smacks his vinegary beak. August, the eighth month, was once in the Roman calendar the sixth month and called Sextilis. It became the eighth month when two extra months were added in around 700 BC, and the name was changed to August in honour of the first emperor Augustus. The first of August was once an important church festival known as Lammas Day. The name Lammas probably comes from a corruption of loaf mass as the bread made with the first corn of the harvest was brought into church, blessed by the priest, and then used in the Mass. Some people also think the name could be derived from Lamb Mass, as lambs were once dedicated at church on this day. Lammas Day used to be a time for foretelling marriages and trying out partners. At many Lammas fairs, it was the custom for two young people to agree to a trial marriage, lasting the period of the fair, usually 11 days, to see whether they were really suited for wedlock. At the end of the fair, if they didn't get on, the couple could part. A remarkably modern concept. August the 24th is St Bartholomew's Day. He is said to have been martyred by being flayed alive, and is, rather gruesomely, the patron saint of butchers and tanners. In London, a great fair used to be held at Smithfield, dating back to 1133, in honour of the nearby hospital of St Bartholomew. This fair attracted many traders and provided much-needed income for the hospital. But it also provided an excuse for bad behaviour and the fair was eventually banned in 1855 because it was said that it was an offence against public dignity and morals. At the fair, the forerunner of today's toffee apples were served, windfall apples skewered on sticks and dipped in thick honey. An appropriate tradition, since St Bartholomew is also the patron saint of beekeepers and honeymakers. 
If I asked you who is the patron saint of golfers, you might suggest St Andrew. But despite the town of St Andrew's connection with the game, St Andrew is not your man. In fact, there is no patron saint of golf, notwithstanding the quantity of prayers that are offered up on every green. Barney. This comes from The Art of Course Golf by Michael Green. The only time in my life I looked like winning a golf competition, I was swindled out of it by 20 Irish navvies. It was the office stroke play tournament for which we used a course near London. Inconceivable though it may seem to those who know me, everyone else was playing worse than me, and by the 13th I was bulging with self-satisfaction, so much so that I recklessly decided to use my driver for the first time in two years. In this frame of mind, I didn't bother with all that pedantic stuff about keeping the head down and the left elbow straight. When I drove, the ball screeched into a nearby road and disappeared through the window of a passing lorry. The lorry swerved across the road and stopped violently. Twenty of the largest men I have ever seen in my life promptly shot over the side. I was naturally very distressed to see them sprawling all over the road, and was just about to go over and apologise and, if possible, get back the ball, when one of the men said in a loud Irish voice, Oing, oing, mother him! At this, a loud mumbling arose, in the middle of which I could distinguish someone saying, That's right, Pat, let's fill him in! He means you, said my opponent, walking hastily down the fairway. The rat! I hurriedly put down another ball, struck it swiftly in the vague direction of the green and hastened after him. Luckily, a spinny hid us from view by now, and at the end of the next hole, which took us back into the country, I was recovering. But just as I was addressing the ball at the short 15th, the lorry drew up on the road behind the tee, and a fist was shaken violently over the hedge. It was then that I discovered the secret of perfect golf. Fear. A quick flash of my seven iron and the ball was skimming to the green. I moved so quickly I nearly got there before it landed. Even then it was a near thing. As the last putt dropped, there came the sound of an engine revving and I saw the lorry trying to get through a gate onto the course. If I were you, said my opponent, I'd turn my collar round and pretend to be a priest. At the 16th, several Irishmen actually burst through a hedge, but fortunately I was searching for my ball in a stream and hid under a friendly bridge until they retreated. At the 17th, the lorry sped by the green and a brick was thrown at me. Then they all vanished. I breathed a sigh of relief and concentrated on winning. As long as I got round in a hundred or so, it was a certainty. The last hole was a short one, sloping upwards towards the clubhouse. My drive was a corking 95 yards, and with only another 60 yards to go, I had four strokes in hand to break 100. The tournament was as good as mine. I was just strolling up the fairway, wondering whether I could make the green in two strokes, when a lorry appeared on the skyline and screamed to a halt in front of the professional's shop. A score of Irishmen jumped out and started swarming all over the 18th green, covering it with cigarette ends and wiping their boots on the turf. It was too much. We turned and fled. After about an hour, we became tired of skulking in a bus shelter and jumping three feet every time a lorry went by, so we telephoned the clubhouse. The steward told us that the Irishman refused to go away and he was out of draft Guinness. He advised me to keep clear. It was dark before we sneaked back. 
Then they told me that if I'd returned on time, I would have won the competition easily. But after waiting until eight o'clock, they'd given the cup to someone else who went round in a hundred and five. I suppose that experience isn't really anything to do with the actual game of golf. But then course golfers' most vivid memories never are. One of the chief features of golf, apart from getting balls into holes, is walking. On an average golf course, you could expect to walk nearly four miles from first tee to 18th hole. The longest golf course in the world is Nullarbor Links in Australia, which runs for 150 miles, crossing the border between western and southern Australia. You are expected to hop in a car, though, to get from hole to hole. Bill Bailey prefers to go on foot, but not on the golf course. Evelyn. A brisk walk is a great pick-me-up. But if you're intent on something a bit more than a stroll in the park, take the advice of Thomas Jefferson, who said, Walking is the best possible exercise. Habituate yourself to walk very far. Which is what I'm doing right now. I'm reclining on a soft turf bank in England. It's late morning in the summertime. Squinting upwards, I follow the progress of a skylark into the holy blue silver wash sky. I've slipped off my walking shoes and socks to rub my feet a little, letting them luxuriate in the cool grass. The high ridge of our location affords a stunning view over the Chiltern Hills on the one side and the Thames Valley on the other. As if this moment could not be bettered, I'm handed a piece of homemade layer cake to accompany the camping mug of tea cooling at my side. Bliss. I am walking the oldest road in Europe, the Ridgeway which is about 90 miles of mostly remote path that connects some of the oldest and most outstandingly natural, beautiful areas of old England. Around me are friends and family who've joined this long-distance endeavour. The plan is to walk the length of the way, plus a little bit extra at the start where it joins with the Icknield Way, to get up to 100 miles and raise some money for charity in the process. We have been staying in B&Bs and pubs, and after 15-odd miles of walking each day, the beds have never felt softer, the breakfasts have never tasted so delicious, cups of tea have never been so relished. Walking is the simplest and perhaps the most underrated of outdoor activities. I like all kinds of walking, from jungle treks to nipping to the shops for tea bags. Whatever the reward is, view or a pint or just a cup of tea and a lie down, walking can be an endless source of happiness, provided I have the correct footwear for it. Among those things that really get my goat, like incorrect spelling or rudeness, having the wrong type of shoe for a required activity is right up there. For me, the thrill isn't so much walking for walking's sake. 
I like the thrill of a walking challenge, especially when there is wildlife along the way that can elevate the experience. One such occasion was a coast-to-coast -coast hike I took across the island of Seram in eastern Indonesia, the aim being to see some of the island's unique bird species. From Seram's rugged northern coast, a group of us hiked for two weeks through dense tropical rainforest in the wet season. Our progress was slow, as the path was not well trodden, so the mud sucked and clawed at our boots as we threaded our way through ancient jungle, while biting insects and leeches came along for the ride. There aren't many cafes in Seram's dense interior, so our daily sustenance consisted of dried fish, rice and noodles. But these hardships are quickly forgotten when you are dazzled by a livid green eclectus parrot or stopped in your tracks by the pterodactylesque wing whoosh of a blithe's hornbill and then, resting on a fallen tree trunk for a moment, find renewed appreciation for a satsuma. At the end of each day, other treats lay in store for us that made the privations worthwhile. Overseas visitors are a rarity for the remote villages in the interior, so our arrival was always a huge novelty. The sight of a bunch of rain-sodden, mud-spattered, wild-eyed loons stumbling out of the jungle was for the village kids tremendous entertainment. The more they laughed and pointed, the more we played up to it, clowned around, pulled faces and silly-walked like idiots. Sometimes the end-of-walk reward takes on a less gratifying, unexpected form. On a walking holiday in northern Spain, our plan was to take the path up the valley to a spectacular 11th-century Benedictine monastery perched on a rocky outcrop that juts out from a vertiginous cliff face. It was hard going under the Catalan sun that beat down on us as we toiled up the rocky trail, threading our way through the orchards and olive groves. Again, this effort was rewarded by bird life, this time with glimpses of dazzling European bee-eaters, richly coloured and rarely seen in Britain, but common in these latitudes. At the summit of this path, we paused to take in the view. We looked down across valleys of olives and little villages, with the mountains receding into the afternoon haze. We sat by a waterfall in reverential silence, taking in the atmosphere of this place and considered our return journey. To have trodden in the footsteps of monks whose path was still the only way to reach this sacred site felt humbling and somehow reassuring, like nothing had changed in a thousand years. A member of staff who spoke perfect English 
asked us if we had enjoyed our time. I said we had, and that we were looking forward to the walk back down to our hotel. You can take a cab if you like, he said. Lot easier. Really? Yep. There's a cab rank round the back. You go up the stairs, past the gift shop, and it's just across the car park. Somehow the spell of this mysterious place was broken. To be honest, I was secretly relieved as it had been a long haul. So, after some ice creams and a few purchases from the gift shop that included a bag of marbles, some postcards, coasters bearing the faces of some notable Benedictine monks, a couple of mugs and a tea towel, we were whisked back to our accommodation down the mountain. The steep path up to the monastery had only really been wide enough for one person so the chance for conversation and banter had been curtailed a little. In these situations, you tend to just put your head down, plant your feet down in a steady rhythm and become withdrawn into your own thoughts, which I imagine had suited your average monk. For more sociable walking, I must admit... I favour the wide chalk downs and worn meadow paths that characterise large sections of the ridgeway, where you can happily stroll along and there is enough space to be easily flanked by the other folk you can blether away with all day. There's something quite congenial about the side-by-side conversation that is less intense than the direct face-to-face exchange. No eye contact need be made. Your direction of travel is the same. You can just drop back out of the chat or accelerate on without the need for some awkward British apology. Towards the end of the 100-mile hike, conversations became notably more terse, along the lines of, How much further? Or, Whose idea was this? which for any non-British people translates as I am having the best time. You are my fond companions. Alan Corran is even more ambitious. Barney. There are some 12 million couples in Britain and I'm confident that Mrs Corran and I speak for all of them when I say we are flabbergasted at the hysterical adulation currently being lavished on Mr and Mrs Thornwell. We are flummoxed, we are gobsmacked, we are stumped, and yes, we are not a little gutted. We cannot for the life of us understand what all the fuss is about. Why are Mr and Mrs Thornwell being lionised and fetid simply for becoming the first married couple to walk to the North Pole? What kind of achievement is that? To walk to the North Pole, you point the compass at the horizon and put one foot after the other. There being neither roads nor cars, one spouse does not have to read the map while the other spouse drives. There is no risk of yelling, grabbing, chucking maps out of windows while swerving dangerously or turning this bloody thing round right now and going straight home. It wasn't my idea to come in the first place. Nor, as night falls, is anybody sitting in the middle of nowhere interrogated as to why they didn't have the sense to fill up when they had the chance 
or invited to explain in words of one syllable why they won't stop and ask someone the way, since there is no one to ask unless you speak bare. As for finding mutually satisfactory overnight accommodation, transarctic spouses do not have to run in and out of a dozen hotels to find a room one of them neglected to book in advance or end up sleeping fetally on the back seat while drunks whittle on their bumpers. Transarctic spouses have a folding nylon hotel on their little sled and when they're tucked up snugly inside it and fancy dinner, they do not go nuts trying to catch the waiter's eye or ringing a room service voicemail that never rings back. They simply pop a bubble pack and chomp on a nourishing pellet that tastes of nothing requiring comment. Neither of them orders a second bottle when they know what it does to them. Your father was the same. Nor do they engage in stand-up rows about toenails in the bidet or hairs on the soap. Upon arrival at the North Pole, no married couple will suffer recriminatory disappointment. Of course, it's not finished. It's not even started. There is no lying rat bag of a manager to wave a brochure at. There are no rooms better than the one they thought they'd booked. And the swimming pool is a reproachless umpteen miles across, albeit solid. Neither spouse will find the place infuriatingly classier or tackier than the other had led them to believe. The clothes they stand up in will be absolutely perfect, because if they try to change into anything else, they will not be standing up for much longer. They will turn blue, topple and snap. Polar couples do not bicker about what to do during the day either. Shopping, scuba diving, sightseeing, paragliding, gambling, visiting the doll museum, lying by the pool, staring at that woman, I wasn't staring, and so forth, are unavailable for marital dispute. What polar couples do during the day is walk. They do not even have the option of standing still. If one of them stands still for more than a few seconds, he or she becomes a permanent topographical feature. Nor are they required to argue nightly about whose turn it is to get up at the crack of dawn and bag a lounger. Any territorial claims that German couples might have entertained about the Arctic Riviera have so far proved to be atypically muted. And while there must always be the chance that someday Herr und Frau Müller will be sprinting out six months before sunup to begin oiling one another at minus 60 degrees, it was not, as I understand it, a problem for the Thornwills. But did this first mould-breaking couple run, as so many of Britain's other 12 million have run, the risk of holiday boredom? Unlikely. While there are admittedly precious few topics of Arctic conversation, all of them white, no couple can manage more than two seconds of speech before tugging their balaclavas back up, lest their lips go solid and chip off. Since most duologue therefore consists of waving mittens about, the likelihood of vacational chat occasioning marital ennui is remote, unless, of course, one of the Thornwells was a semaphore freak. In short, their chilly stroll was a doddle from start to finish. I was not in the least surprised when Fiona hugged Mike and confided to the phalanx of gobbling hacks that the trip has brought us much closer together. I really want to encourage other couples so that they too can achieve their lifetime's dreams. Bang on the money, Mrs Thornwell. Look for me and Mrs Corrin this very weekend and you'll find us shopping at Sleds R Us. Staying safely within the UK's boundaries, John Betjeman predictably prefers the train. 
Unmitigated England came swinging down the line that day the February sun did crisp and crystal shine. Dark red at Kirkby Bentinck stood a steeply gabled farm, mid ash trees and the sycamore in charismatic calm. A village street, a manor house, the church, then tally-ho! We pounded through a housing scheme with telemasts a row where cars of parked executives did regimented wait beside administrative blocks within the factory gate. She waved to us from Hucknall South as we hooted round a bend. From a certain front room window did the diesel driver's friend. Through cuttings deep to Nottingham precariously we wound. The swallowing tunnel made the train seem London's underground. Above the fields of Leicestershire, on arches we were born, and the rumble of the railway drowned the thunder of the corn. And silver shone the steeples out above the barren boughs. Colts in a paddock ran from us, but not the solid cows. And quite where Rugby Central is does only Rugby know. We watched the empty platform wait and sadly saw it go. By now the sun of afternoon showed ridge and furrow shadows and shallow, unfamiliar lakes stood shivering in the meadows. Is Woodford Church or Hinton Church the one I ought to see? Or were they both too much restored in 1883? I do not know. Towards the west a trail of glory runs and we leave the old Great Central Line for Banbury and Buns. Rather than the train, turn-of-the-century works or village annual outings often employed the charaban to take large groups of friends to their usually seaside or country destination for an often rather boozy day-long outing. In the August of 1953, Dylan Thomas read aloud for the last time one of his stories on the BBC. If you could call it a story, he said, there's no beginning or end and very little middle. But it gives a small insight to the early part of his own life, in which alcohol was later to play such a significant part. The story, I think we can call it a story, was The Outing. Evelyn. My uncle's wife stood in front of the dresser with a china dog in one hand. By gee, I said to myself again, did you ever see such a woman, if that's what she is? If you go on that outing on Saturday, Mr Thomas, she said to my uncle in her small silk voice, I'm going home to my mother's. Holy mo, I thought she's got a mother. Now that's one old bald mouse of a 105 I won't be wanting to meet in a dark lane. It's me or the outen, Mr Thomas. I would have made my choice at once. But it was almost half a minute before my uncle said, Well then, Sarah, it's the outen, my love. He lifted her up under his arm onto a chair in the kitchen and she hit him on the head with the china dog. Then he lifted her down again and I said good night. For the rest of the week, my uncle's wife whisked quiet and quick round the house with her darting duster. 
My uncle blew and bugled and swore, and I kept myself busy all the time being up to no good. And then at breakfast time on Saturday morning, the morning of the outing, I found a note on the kitchen table. It said, There's some eggs in the pantry. Take your boots off before you go to bed. My uncle's wife had gone as quick as a flash. When my uncle saw the note, he tugged out the flag of his handkerchief and blew such a hubbub of trumpets that the plates on the dresser shook. It's the same every year, he said, and then he looked at me. But this year it's different. You'll have to come on the outen too, and what the members will say I dare not think. The sharabang drew up outside, and when the members of the outing saw my uncle and me squeeze out of the shop together, both of us catlicked and brushed in our Sunday best, they snarled like a zoo. Are you bringing a boy? asked Mr Benjamin Franklin as we climbed into the sharabang. He looked at me with horror. Boys is nasty, said Mr Weasley. He hasn't paid his contributions, Will Sentry said. No room for boys. Boys get sick in sharabangs. So do you, Enoch Davis, said my uncle. Might as well bring women. The way they said it, women were worse than boys. Better than bringing grandfathers. Grandfathers is nasty too, said Mr Weasley. What can we do with him when we stop for refreshments? I'm a grandfather, said Mr Weasley. Twenty-six minutes to opening time, shouted an old man in a Panama hat, not looking at a watch. They forgot me at once. Good old Mr Cadwallader, they cried, and the sharabang started off down the village street. We were out of the village and over the bridge and up the hill towards Steeplehat Wood, when Mr Franklin, with his list of names in his hand, called out loud, Where's old O Jones? Where's old O? We've left old O behind. Can't go without old O. And though Mr Weasley hissed all the way, we turned and drove back to the village, where outside the Prince of Wales, old O Jones was waiting patiently and alone with a canvas bag. I didn't want to come at all, old O Jones said, as they hoisted him into the sharabang and clapped him on the back and pushed him on a seat and stuck a bottle in his hand. But I always go. And over the bridge and up the hill and under the deep green wood and along the dusty road, we wove slow cows and ducks flying by until... <gasps> Stop the bus, Mr Weasley cried. I left my teeth on the mantelpiece. Never you mind, they said. You are not going to bite nobody. And they gave him a bottle with a straw. I might want to smile, he said. Not you, they said. What's the time, Mr Cadwallader? Twelve minutes to go, shouted back the old man in the Panama, and they all began to curse him. The sharabang pulled up outside the mountain sheep 
a small, unhappy public house with a thatched roof like a wig with ringworm. From a flagpole by the gents fluttered the flag of Siam. I knew it was the flag of Siam because of cigarette cards. The landlord stood at the door to welcome us. He was a long, lean, black-fanged man with a greased love curl and pouncing eyes. What a beautiful August day, he said, and touched his love curl with a claw. That was the way he must have welcomed the mountain sheep before he ate it, I said to myself. The members rushed out bleating and into the bar. You keep an eye on the shara, my uncle said. See, nobody steals it now. There's nobody to steal it, I said, except some cows. But my uncle was gustily blowing his bugle in the bar. I looked at the cows opposite, and they looked at me. There was nothing else for us to do. Forty-five minutes passed like a very slow cloud. The sun shone down on the lonely road, the lost, unwanted boy, and the lake-eyed cows. In the dark bar, they were so happy there were breaking glasses. A shony onion Breton man with a beret and a necklace of onions bicycled down the road and stopped at the door. Quel un grand matin, monsieur, I said. Oh, there's French boy Bach, he said. I followed him down the passage and peered into the bar. I could hardly recognise the members of the outing. They'd all changed colour. Beetroot, rhubarb and puce. They hollered and rollicked in that dark, damp hole like enormous ancient bad boys. And my uncle surged in the middle, all red whiskers and bellies. On the floor was broken glass and Mr Weasley. Drinks all round, cried Bob the Fiddle, a small, absconding man with bright blue eyes and a plump smile. Oh, who's been robbing the orphans? Who sold his little babby to the jippos? Trust all Bobby let you down. You will have your little joke, said Bob the Fiddle, smiling like a razor. But I forgive you, boys. Out of the fog and babel, I heard... Come out and fight. No, not now, later. No, now, when I'm in a temper. Look at Will Sentry. He's proper snobbled. Look at his willful feet. Look at Mr Weasley lording it on the floor. Mr Weasley got up, hissing like a gander. That boy pushed me down deliberate, he said, pointing to me at the door and I slunk away down the passage and out to the mild, good cows. Time clouded over. The cows wondered. I threw a stone at them, and they wandered, wondering, away. Then out blew my uncle, ballooning, and one by one the members lumbered after him in a grizzle. They had drunk the mountain sheep dry. Mr Weasley had won a string of onions that the Shoney Onion Man raffled in the bar. "'What's the good of onions if you left your teeth on the mantelpiece?' he said. And when I looked through the back window of the thundering Sharabang, I saw the pub grow smaller in the distance, 
and the flag of Siam from the flagpole by the gents fluttered now at half-mast. The blue bull, the dragon, the star of Wales, the tuch in the wall, the sour grapes, the shepherd's arms, the bells of Abadavi. I had nothing to do in the whole wild August world but remember the names where the outing stopped and keep an eye on the charabang. And whenever it passed a public house, Mr Weasley would cough like a billy goat and cry, Stop the bus, I'm dying a breath! And back we'd have to go. Closing time meant nothing to the members of that outing. Behind locked doors, they hymned and rumpused all the beautiful afternoon. And when a policeman entered the druid's tap by the back door and found them all choral with beer, Shh, said Noah Bowen, the pub shut. Where do you come from? he said in his buttoned blue voice. They told him. Oh, I got an auntie there, the policeman said and very soon he was singing Asleep in the Deep. Off we drove again at last, the charabang bouncing with tenors and flagons, and came to a river that rushed along among willows. Water! they shouted. Porthcall! sang my uncle. Where's the donkeys? said Mr Weasley. And out they lurched to paddle and whoop in the cool, white, winding water. Mr Franklin, trying to polka on the slippery stones, fell in twice. Nothing simple, he said with dignity as he oozed up the bank. It's cold, they cried. It's lovely. It's smooth as a moth's nose. It's better than Pothcall. And dusk came down, warm and gentle, on thirty wild, wet, pickled, splashing men without a care in the world at the end of the world in the west of Wales. Who goes there? called Will Sentry to a wild duck flying. They stopped at the hermit's nest for a rum to keep out the cold. I played for Abaravan in 1898, said a stranger to Enoch Davis. Liar! said Enoch Davis. I can show you photos, said the stranger. Forged, said Enoch Davis. And I'll show you my cap at home. Stolen. I got friends to prove it, the stranger said in a fury. Bribed, said Enoch Davis. On the way home, through the simmering moon-splashed dark, old O. Jones began to cook his supper on a primus stove in the middle of the charabang. Mr. Weasley coughed himself blue in the smoke. Stop the bus, he cried. I'm dying a breath. We all climbed down into the moonlight. There was not a public house in sight. So they carried out the remaining cases and the primus stove and old O. Jones himself and took them into a field and sat down in a circle in the field and drank and sang while O. Jones cooked sausage and mash and the moon flew above us. And there I drifted to sleep against my uncle's mountainous waistcoat and as I slept... Who goes there? called out Will Sentry to the flying moon.
Evening read from The Outing by Dylan Thomas, which he recorded for the BBC just three months before he died. Benjamin Zephaniah is staying even closer to home. Barney. At the bottom of my garden, there's a hedgehog and a frog and a lot of creepy crawlies living underneath a log. There's a baby daddy longlegs and an easy-going snail and a family of woodlice. All are on my nature trail. There are caterpillars waiting for their time to come to fly. There are worms turning the earth over as ladybirds fly by. Birds will visit, cats will visit, but they always choose their time. And I've seen a fox visit this wild garden of mine. Squirrels come to nick my nuts and busy bees come buzzing. And when the night time comes, sometimes some dragonflies come humming. My garden mice are very shy, and I've seen bats that growl, and in my garden I've seen a very wise old owl. My garden is a lively place. There's always something happening. There's this constant search for food, and then there's all that flowering. When you have a garden, you will never be alone, and I believe we all deserve a garden of our own. That was Nature Trail by Benjamin Zephaniah, which leads us nicely into this month's Growing Sense with Vonya Carlton and Mike Lane. Morning, Vonya. Good morning, Mike. And what are we going to talk about this morning? Plums, by any Exactly, chance? exactly. Plums are one of my favourite fruits, fruits yeah. generally. Um, and I always find um, it's actually quite relaxing to pick because they're at a nice height uh, and you can push your, your fingers into them slightly and give them a bit of a twist and just pull them off. You need to be aware of wasps, though, don't we? Because yeah. they do like plums. They, they do like plums. Um, is there any yeah. way of protecting the tree so that the wasps don't get in there? There is something you can hang. Sort of the, like a basket like thing. Like a basket thing, and then they yes. fill them up with sweet juices okay so the wasps, the wasps go there and rather the wasps than... then fly into the, into the okay. sweet juices yes that could be an option plums basically became very popular from 1900 onwards uh, from our friend who produced chocolate up in Bourneville. mr cabri yep mr cabri in 1900 decided to open a factory in evesham his idea was to share the fruits of Worcestershire. Mm. So they built a very large building from brick, which was 45 to 50 centimetres thick, or 18 inches, uh, as a calling place. Wow. And then they were distributed all, all, all over the UK. Fantastic. Via the rail routes. Um, this worked incredibly well, as you could well imagine. Other people jumped on the bandwagon. And in total, there was eight canning factories in Evesham. Amazing. Uh, up until about the, the, the 50s. I never knew that. Jams. There was a, there was a number making of jam jams. factories as well, mm-hmm. making jams. Amazing. The Pershaw plum, actually, oh. which, is a, which is a yellow, sort of like an egg plum, uh, that was used especially well for the canning. I never knew that. I have some stuff here. It says the, the Pershaw plum, in many ways, the per, is the perfect commercial plum. So there you go. As well as the Pershaw egg plum... You can also find plums like Victoria. Uh, there's a, a, a very small plum as well from Cambridge called the Cambridge Gage. 
Is it like a green gauge? Yeah, yeah, more or less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, the newest plum from Pershaw is the Pershaw Emblem. Very good. As we're talking about fruit trees, that brings us over to your lovely space, which um, yes, it was last year we started it. Yes, so we so you decided to to trim the area first first off, and then you put some carpet down. That's correct. Some yeah. carpet, carpet down. You pegged the carpet down, and then you left the carpet uh, over the winter. Yes. You lifted the lifted the carpet up, um, yes. and then you planted. Potatoes, potatoes seed, seed potatoes and then the yes. potatoes are swelled and broken the soil up Fanta- yeah it's a fantastic yep. uh, way of doing yeah. it yeah 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 it's really good actually cause you can get the fork the fork in as well and it bring, brings everything up and lots of air into the soil uh, and now you've got a fantastic area for planting a fruit tree or three or three <laughs> so what are we going to go for an eating yeah um, apple apple um, okay Cooker, cooker like a yeah, Bramley apple or yes, something like that. Yes. yes. Head over to Pershaw or Evesham and pick up one of those lovely plum trees. Yes, I think a couple actually. A couple of plum yeah. trees. One of the purple yep. ones and one of the yellow ones would okay. be nice. Yes. That sounds good. And do you think some raspberry canes we could fit in as well? Okay. Trying to stick one or two in. One or two. One or two. Yeah. Lovely. That sounds. Sounds fine. yeah. That sounds great, Mike. Great. Okay then. Well, um, I'll see you in October. Thank you ever so much. Lovely to see you. Thanks then. Bye. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails shaking and a grey mist on the sea's face, and a grey dawn breaking. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying, and the flung spray and the blown spume, and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way where the wind's like a whetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and a quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. John Macefield's famous poem, Sea Fever. Thank you, Evelyn. Alexander McCall Smith is inspired by a more modern form of transport, the aeroplane. Barney. The language of pilots. They speak with high authority, ailerons and wings responsive to their touch, Their words are functional, but why, I wonder, should a pilot not be a poet too? And say... We now descend at last through banks of cloud, white fields as wide as any ocean, at least when viewed from this suspended point. For it is Bernoulli's principle that lifts and keeps us here, between the patient earth below and this empty, soaring sky. 
Ladies and gentlemen, rain falls in distant veils. Look from your windows to the starboard side of this metal tube we call an aircraft. Look out there and see the rain, the grey-white shafts of rain. Do you know that those wisps of cloud you see up above are crystals of ice falling like gossamer? Did you know that? Now, please, about your waists, affix the belts. You must, and slowly towards the earth we drop, to land's embrace. Your belts adjust. We are a little late, but what are a few minutes, nothing more, here and there? Not much, I think. Goodbye, and take with you the things you brought, your few possessions. Goodbye, until we meet again, and once more we carry you on wings of steel, on wings of steel, to the places you would wish to go. Goodbye, dear friends, it matters not whether you're a member of the loyalty scheme we've got. We love you all, as parents love their children equally. Remember that, and please come back. Goodbye again, and cabin crew, unbar the doors, let light be seen, secure what needs securing, and cross-check, whatever that might mean. Goodbye, for soon these great engines on landing will be silenced, as will I. And when you do land, I hope you are a bit happier about your surroundings than Pam Ayres was. Christine. Take me back to old Littlehampton. I didn't want this holiday. I know I shan't enjoy it. If I think of any way to hamper yours, then I'll employ it. I didn't like the journey, and I don't like our hotel, and I wish I'd stayed at home. That would have done me very well. No, I'm not going swimming, not with my infected ear, not with all those half-dressed women running up and down. No fear. I'll just sit here in the bedroom, or oh, and pull the curtains do, for the sun inflames me headache. It's quite all right for you. You go and have a lovely time. Don't think of me at all. I've got me English paper. You go out and have a ball. You go and have a rave up. Go on, and have a fling. Don't come for me at dinner time. I couldn't eat a thing. I could have been at home now, sitting watching the TV, with my hair all washed and set, and with a cat sat on me knee. I can't use me heated rollers for the vaults are up the creek and the bath's all full of sand. I haven't had one for a week. Still, it's all right. No, it's lovely. And we saved up for a year. Dear mother, having a lovely time. I wish that you were here. How I let myself be talked into a fortnight, I don't know. Still, you go out, enjoy it. One week down and one to go. Oh, dear. If that was Italy... Pam Ayres might have been in worse trouble if she'd gone out into the street feeling like that, as a local bylaw in Milan makes it illegal not to have a perpetual smile on your face, the only exception being when attending a funeral or visiting someone in hospital. Wherever you travel, of course, you have to obey the laws of the land, but beware, some of them are very strange indeed. Take, for example, Turin where, if you cut through enough red tape actually to take your dog with you on holiday, you'd better be sure that you walk him at least three times a day, or risk a large fine. As for the romantic Italian island of Capri, be careful about what you put on your feet. The local council has passed a law banning noisy footwear, 
And quite recently, a couple were actually arrested for wearing excessively loud flip-flops. Safer, perhaps, to stay at home. Something quintessentially British and popular at this time of year, of course, is the village fete. Close your eyes and picture a village fete. Conjure up the spacious mossy park dotted with oak trees, stalls run by stout matrons wearing hats and flowered dresses, trestle tables piled with homemade jam and cakes, children running everywhere, the strains of the village band. It may seem like an archetypal feature of rural British life, but in fact, the village fete typically dates back only to the 1920s and 30s. Fairs have been a feature of life in Britain since medieval times and were originally a marketplace for the buying and selling of stock and the hiring of men. Many counties still hold these fairs, which have gradually evolved into agricultural shows. The village fete, however, is an altogether gentler and more modern event and has its roots in charity rather than commerce. The early fetes possibly grew out of sales of work, where the ladies of the parish made items to be sold for charitable causes, such as war veterans or orphans. The heyday of the fete was probably the 1950s, when it featured heavily in contemporary fiction, such as Richmond Crompton's Just William series. Fates slowly declined in the late 1970s and 1980s, perhaps reflecting the changes in the community as more and more locals left the village and newcomers had less interest in traditional village life. More recently, however, the traditional fate has made a comeback and such events are now common in towns and villages across the country. Once again, the villagers are filling up with people keen to enjoy a stronger sense of community and parents who remember the events from their own childhood are now keen to bring along their own children to enjoy all the fun of the fete. Events that were once commonplace, such as donkey rides and bowling for a pig, playing skittles to win a live piglet, are now rare, although larger events still feature dog shows and fairground rides. Val Brooker has been organising the annual church fete in the village of Toft near Nutsford, Cheshire, since 1995. The event has a history going back 40 years and is very popular locally. We normally raise around £3,000, explains Brooker, but even when the weather's very bad, we still raise around £2,500. I think that's down to the British mentality. When it's raining hard, people will make a special point of turning out to support us. Brooker and her team spend much of the year getting ready for the fete and she likes to stage events that are suitable for all age groups and offer something for everyone. It's a great family day out. 
we often see three generations of the same family, all having fun, she said. As well as the more traditional games and stalls, we often try more unusual events. One year, we held snail races with garden snails, releasing them back into the field at the end of the day. Another time, a local archery club came and showed people how to fire a longbow. People are very generous with their time and donations, and the success of the fete really depends on that. Brooker believes that Toft Church Fete is so popular because it has a traditionally British country feel. Local people who have moved elsewhere in the country often come back to Toft for the fete, treating it as a social event and a chance to catch up with friends and former neighbours. It really pulls the village together and highlights each person's skills, whether they're creative or managerial, she said. In a way, the community benefit is greater than the monetary benefit. When the sun is shining and the stalls are crowded, there's such a feel-good factor. Whether driven by nostalgia, a need to form part of a community, or simply a desire to sustain this most quintessential of British pastimes, support for the village fate is booming, and long may it last. Pam Ayers again. I went to France recently on a cycling trip. If I told my friends I was going on a normal sun and sand kind of holiday, I expect their response would involve plenty of kind, encouraging advice. You be sure to push your feet up and have a nice rest. You work hard, you deserve it. Or they may have visited the very place themselves. You'll love it, they might gush. It's so beautiful, I wish we were coming as well. The weather would certainly be featured. Hope the sun shines, don't get sunburned. Concern may be expressed for your well-being. Safe journey, let us know when you arrive. Along with saucy notes of the nudge-wink variety. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Mind what you get up to out there. These are the kind of remarks you might expect before a normal holiday. However, if you tell your friends you are going on a cycling holiday, this is not going to be the case. Instead, they smirk and, adopting a strange crab-like walk, sidle up to you and say, well, mind you don't get a sore bum. Then they crease up with coarse laughter. People were also quick to ask me if I had bought my padded cycling shorts, and I gave this serious thought. The thing was, I had not cycled for years, decades, a quarter of a century. Yet I was about to set off to France to cycle long distances every day for a week. Not only that, but the friends we were going with were exceedingly fit. One ran regularly in the London Marathon, and all were serious about being in top physical condition. Clearly, I didn't want to be the odd one out, the embarrassing red-faced nuisance puffing at the back who couldn't keep up, who shouldn't have come. I decided to research what equipment I actually needed, then dispensing with unnecessary affectations, identify and acquire the basics, the absolute essentials. I found a cycle shop in Cheltenham, 
and set out my case to the disturbingly toad-like man seated in a sunken attitude behind the counter. I was going on a cycling holiday. My companions were fit, experienced cyclists and I wanted to ascertain what equipment I really needed. Take cycling shorts, for instance. Were they actually essential? What did they do exactly and how were they made? The toad-like man revealed himself to be a pillock. A terrible grin spread over his face. You come round here, darling, I'll give you a guided tour, he croaked. I had more luck on the internet. There I discovered everything I had ever wanted to know about cycling shorts. In particular, at the very best, top drawer versions are made from chamois leather. They seemed immensely useful to me. If you didn't fancy going for a bike ride, you could take your shorts off and clean all the windows. We set off. Our starting point was Chinon in the Loire Valley, brooded over by the majestic chateau and awash with fine regional wines. On our first morning, we reported to the cycle depot to be furnished with our bikes. Having already supplied our height and leg measurements, only fine tuning was required, a tweak of the saddle height, a lowering of the handlebar. Custodian of the depot was Eric, a humourless man who gave two no-nonsense demonstrations. These were A, the repairing of a puncture, and B, how to wrestle your chain back on when it has come off. Eric managed at the same time to imply that anybody who couldn't do either of these simple tasks should have stayed at home. I watched his deft juggling of the grease cake chain with misgivings. Finally, he gave us his handy tips gleaned after years of experience. The first one was particularly startling, delivered as it was in his flat, monotone voice. I recommend a precautionary application of antiseptic cream to the entire crotch area. A stunned silence followed. Horrible visions were conjured up. So you might, matey, murmured my husband. Eric gave us maps of recommended cycling routes and for our first day suggested a ride to Chateau du Riveau. It was stunningly beautiful. Months before, on receiving the various brochures at home, I had cynically leafed through and dismissed the seductive photographs as a mere come-on for tourists. There's no way, I scoffed, no way we're likely to see all these beautiful things at once. But see them we did. On that day and subsequent days, we pedalled our bikes through fields of sunflowers, their enormous endearing faces all turned in the same direction. Our route took us spinning through vineyards, orchards, melon fields and forests, all washing like a sea at the base of white castles. We cruised along the levees of the Loire, wide embankments built to contain the river when in flood. Alongside us, on the verges, Householders offered modest boxes of tomatoes and cucumbers for sale to cyclists and ahead of us shady paths ran away beneath a cool arching canopy of trees. It was unforgettable. With our tyres crackling on the sandy surface we rode along, sweet little homes and gardens on our right and on our left, glimpsed through woodland, the sparkle and flash of the Loire. I should have written a profound and beautiful poem about that tranquil, that inspiring place. Instead, I wrote this. A 
let's go on a cycling holiday. Let's all be jolly sports, with insects all down the back of your throat and up the leg of your shorts. I suppose you could regard that poem as a holiday souvenir. Alan Corran spotted a great souvenir competition in the Daily Telegraph. Barney. When Sir Henry's souvenir, 1526 to 1587, at last returned to the court of Queen Elizabeth from his ten-year tour of the Orient, he little thought that their opening exchange would pass into history. What have you brought for me? asked his queen. It's a box made from the liver of an elephant, Your Majesty, replied Sir Henry, wrought in strange fashion by the natives and covered in seashells. You can keep fags in it. Where did you get it? she inquired. I can't remember, he said. And thus it was that the pattern of the next four hundred years was firmly laid. Ever since that fateful day in 1570, people have been coming back from distant parts carrying things to put cigarettes in, which they give to other people to remind them of places that neither of them can recall. The word souvenir has, of course, slightly extended its meaning until it now denotes almost anything either breakable or useless. But even today, 90% of the items covered by the word are forgettable objects in which cigarettes can be left to go stale. Some people don't actually give their souvenirs away, preferring instead to build up a vast collection with which to decorate lofts. It's not immediately clear why they do this, but a strong ritualistic element is clearly involved, no doubt because the objects are themselves closely associated with the passing of time and take on a totemistic quality from this association. Souvenirs, for example, can never be thrown away, probably because to do so would be to wipe out the past of which they are the only extant record. They are, however, moved around the loft every five years or so when their lids tend to fall off, or in the case of clocks, when their cuckoos fall out. The cuckoo clock, in fact, may be said to be the quintessential souvenir, in that it exists purely to be bought, sold, wrapped, carried home, unwrapped, and put in lofts. It never hangs on walls. It's usually purchased in Switzerland, where it never hangs on walls either. How it became involved with Switzerland is a horological mystery of a high order, but experts have suggested that since Switzerland has nothing else to identify it, Eiffel Towers, Taj Mahal, castanets, chopsticks, and since both its natural products, snow and chocolate, melt, the cuckoo clock was invented solely in order to give tourists something solid to remember it by. The undeniable success of the cuckoo clock has led the Swiss to branch out with typically cautious adventurousness. Removing the tiny house from which the cuckoo emerges They've enlarged it in recent years and inserted a music box inside it, which, when you lift the lid, starts to play Oh Mine Papa and breaks. It's for keeping cigarettes in. Mention of the Eiffel Tower and the Taj Mahal leads me naturally to point out an important secondary characteristic of this souvenir. It is invariably an imitation of something else, even when it's original. Inventiveness of a remarkable kind often goes into this imitation, and accusations of vulgarity do not detract from the brilliance of the minds that, for example, saw in the Eiffel Tower not a thousand feet of iron, but six inches of salt cellar with a nude in the base and a thermometer up one side. 
Not that our own English craftsmen have been left behind in the race for international kudos. A mere mile from where I'm writing this, you can buy a midget guardsman with ten fags in his bearskin and a gaslighter on his rifle. Or a pygmy beefeater out of whose cunningly constructed mouth 20 different scenes of London may be pulled in full colour. All over Kansas at this very moment, recent visitors to Britain will be trying to glue its head back on. Souvenirs also have an invaluable role to play as conversation pieces, even though there will usually be more pieces than conversation. The talk is often quite fascinating, viz... Yes, we bought that in Brussels. <laughs> Amusing, isn't it? When you switch it on, it pees. Oh, well, it did. Perhaps it needs a new bath. Now, look what you've done has come off in your hand. We'll never get the cigarettes out of it now. Or, this nut dish is constructed entirely out of a single piece of elk horn, by the way, and the crackers are made from the ribs of an okapi. Yes, O-K-A-P-I. And now, if you care to pick up that pincushion in the shape of the Great Pyramid, you'll find... Oh, really? But it's only nine o'clock. And, of course, you haven't seen our Nefertiti doorstep yet. That carpet you're running down is an extremely fascinating example of very early Sudanese. It's not always easy to choose souvenirs, of course, and many people swear by clothes. I myself have sworn by a suit I bought in Hong Kong some years ago and hope one day to bring out the oaths in book form as soon as permissiveness establishes itself more securely. As everyone knows, Hong Kong has some of the finest tailors in the world, but what they actually do there is open to question since all the clothes are made by some of the worst. My own suit, hacked from a wonderfully dirt-absorbent length of, I think, Kleenex, is loosely piled on the floor of the loft, being unable to stay on its hanger. It was, of course, cheap. Less than four times as much as a similar article picked up in Savile Row when, due to a light shower in Piccadilly, the Hong Kong item started gripping my flesh with all the enthusiasm of an undernourished vampire. It's a wonderful conversation piece, mind. People I'd known intimately for years suddenly began pointing out that they'd never realised I had one shoulder five inches lower than the other or that my inside leg measured 14 inches. Osteopaths would approach me in the street and offer their services free in the interest of science. Not that I'll be entering the telegraph competition, though. The suit has competition enough at home, and my initial problem is selecting exactly which rare and precious item to blow the dust off in order to pick up the six quid with which the telegraph hopes to console me for the misspent years of haggling in bazaars and dragging crates through airports and lashing out enough customs dues to turn the real Arc de Triomphe into a musical needlework cabinet and knock the bottom out of the French souvenir trade forever. What shall I choose from the matchless hoard? The genuine Matabele shield riddled with moth holes? The elephant's foot waste basket, perhaps the most macabre thing ever to pass across a counter. When we came home from India and unwrapped it, the toenails fell off. The solid brass tabletop we bought at the same shop in Delhi, which peeled on the plane and rusted in the cab back from Heathrow. The hand-sewn slippers from Alexandria, which gave rise to a condition which has baffled chiropodists throughout the civilised world. My genuine Dutch meerschaum that glows in the dark, blisters and flakes off onto the authentic Bukhara rug, which is supposed to have taken two generations of Uzbeks to weave and which it took the cat one evening to unravel. On second thoughts, I don't think I'll bother. 
Let someone else take the telegraph's money with his walrus tooth letter opener, barometer and shoehorn combined. I'm hanging on to my stock. Someday soon the Martian package tourists are going to start arriving and I'm going to be down there at the saucer port handing out my copper plate business cards. Give them a free glass of mint tea and those people will buy anything. <laughs> Wherever you go out and about, it's always good to have a good book to hand. And Phil Lee has a suggestion from our library of talking books. I was looking for something a little different this time and decided on a book which is essentially a true story based on an exchange of letters of a most delightful kind. It's called 84 Charing Cross Road and is read by John Nettles and Juliet Stevenson, both of whom prove inspired interpreters of the author's intentions in publishing this correspondence. The book caused lots of interest when it came out in 1970, later becoming both a play and a film. The letters are sent by Helen Hanf, a writer who is looking for books that are unavailable or too expensive in New York, where she lives, at the opening of the correspondence on East 95th Street. In London, their recipient is Frank Dole, who works for Marks & Company, rare and second-hand books at 84 Charing Cross Road. The interchange begins in late 1949 and lasts well into the 1960s. Helen has a wonderful, provocative sense of humour and just the sort of personality that leads you to think that you know her from the outset. Listen here as she sounds off about a book she's just received. 14 East 95th Street, October 15, 1951. What kind of a Peeps's diary do you call this? This is not Peeps's diary. This is some busybody editor's miserable collection of excerpts from Peeps's diary, may he rot. I could just spit. Where is Jan 12, 1668, where his wife chased him out of bed and round the bedroom with a red-hot poker? Frank gradually emerges from behind his opening formal signature of FPD. He does so straight after Helene, having read about austere rationing in the UK after the war, has sent the company a ham to compensate. This is followed by an Easter parcel from New York and Helen's demand for a quicker response to her latest wants list. The parcels continue and the correspondence is joined by Cecily, who also works for Marks and & Company, and she writes to Helen about London and her family. In passing, the book is a great insight into life in London in the years after the Second World War. You'll also enjoy correspondent Mary's letters, those of Frank's wife and the others who join in. The readers give each voice its own personality. There are two CDs in excellent condition that last around two hours, including interviews with the readers, who are excellent. If I have a reservation, it's to do with the editing. Was it really necessary to include the addresses of sender and recipient before each letter? It does become rather repetitive. If you'd like to borrow this audio book, let us know at Colin Chance House and we'll put it into your envelope when it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. Our story this month is taken from a volume of six shortish stories by Martin Hesp, entitled Tales from the Lockdown. That period when the world's daily routine was most thoroughly interrupted. 
This, the second tale in the collection, is The Long Walk Home. George Hayward, the forester, was unpopular. And the reason George Hayward was unpopular was that he was miserable. It was said in the hills and forests around the National Park where he worked that no one had ever seen him laugh. No one actively disliked George. They just didn't care about him. Why should they? He never gave anything, never contributed. He lived alone, and if you met him, you'd have thought he just didn't like being alive. What most people didn't know was that George hadn't always been like this. He used to laugh a long time ago, but that was before he married the wrong woman, a beautiful girl called Grace, who loved to be the centre of attention, loved having what she called a good laugh, and also loved to flirt. After two years of marriage, George came home one day to find a note. It was all matter of fact. Grace had found somebody else and was leaving him. From that day on, for twenty-five years, there was an anger that followed George like a cloud, a cloud that never really went away, but over time changed in shape and form. The rage towards Grace was replaced by a bleak, undying bitterness that seemed to cloak everything this lonely man ever said or did. His manager, Simon Green, used to attempt to get a smile out of him, but only because he'd known George since they were boys. Eventually, even he gave up. There was just no helping George. Now, on a bright, chilly April morning, Simon received a text that said, "'Gone to Mother's in Carhampton. She's not good. Can't get diesel, so I'm walking. See you when I get back.'" Despite all the shops and pubs being closed during the lockdown, George was certainly capable of making the 75-mile journey on foot from South Devon to his mother's village in West Somerset. All those years living in a cottage in the middle of nowhere had equipped him for any kind of mission that required a degree of toughness and survival skills. He shot deer and snared rabbits, caught fish, trapped eels, and what he couldn't catch, his two lurchers could. Half the vegetables in his diet were gleaned from the hedgerows, and the other half he grew himself. George, Simon thought, was probably the one man in England who would not be in the least bit bothered by any lockdown. And so it was that George was able to fill his rucksack with homemade venison jerky, two homemade sourdough loaves, and a plastic container full of wild garlic pesto. That, and a sleeping bag, a ground sheet, a change of clothes, and he was gone. Or rather, they were gone. George and his two lurchers... Win and Billy. By nine o'clock in the morning, he had reached the gate which opened onto the moors. In front of George was a pond that looked for all the world like a window, opening down into a subterranean sky. He walked over to it so the two lurchers could drink, and clouds scurried past his feet in a perfect mirror image of the sky above his head. There was something special about that moment. 
So much so that for an instant, George staggered back a step, looking into that rippled upside-down sky. It was as if he were looking down into some other universe. For a moment, George's world was reduced to just sky above and below, and something about it made him slightly dizzy. At the same time, something seemed to snap inside him. Not snap, exactly, more a silent click, perhaps more like a key turning in a lock. Snick, and it was done. In that moment of exactitude and clarity, something changed. It was as if coming up to the moor on this cold, clear, silent day had released him in some way. He thought, You are a silly man, George Haywood. You have spent a quarter of a century wasting that precious thing called life. He spent years in dark forests, but now he was surrounded by light and was going to stride out into the wide open moors, into this new place. George pressed on northward, heading into the very deepest parts of the Mid-Devon countryside. And it was there that something happened to George Haywood that would change his life. As he descended into a steep little river valley, he heard the noise. A series of sobs. It was a woman crying. The dogs heard it too, and they set off at that fabulous, elegant speed of theirs. And so it was on the banks of some unnamed stream that George Hayward came across Dina Maier. He saw her sitting on a fallen tree by the river. Her face was pushed between her knees and her hands were on top of her long blonde hair and her whole upper torso shuddered every few seconds as loud sobs emanated from within. And then the lurchers were with her, licking her hands and wagging their tails, and she looked up in surprise. Now George could see her face. A handsome woman, perhaps in her mid-forties. He stopped about thirty feet away and called across. Don't mind the dogs, they're friendly. Sorry if they surprised you. Are you all right? It was the most George Hayward had said to anyone in months. The woman muttered something about being okay and was trying to dry her eyes. So George went on talking. But you were crying. I'm sorry, it's none of my business. But if I can help in any way, then just say. I'm on a long-distance walk to see my old mother. But there's no real hurry, honestly, if I can be of any assistance. The woman started to cry again. And George moved closer an action which took him by surprise. The old George would have just shrugged and walked on by. But now here he was, sitting on a riverbank, looking across at a weeping stranger with her head in her hands. Look, lady, you just cry and get it out of your system. And when you're ready, you tell me if there is anything I can do to help. I've been walking for a couple of days now and... I've seen how shut down the country is. I'm thinking maybe you could do with a little help, but but you tell me to push off if I'm intruding. 
That seemed to do the trick. The woman began to talk. Posh. Educated. She explained that her husband had been in New York when he got caught up in the global pandemic. Apparently he was a composer and had been performing over there. But because of the mayhem caused by the outbreak of coronavirus, he had failed to catch his plane home. Then he'd gone down with the virus and within just two days, he died. She'd suddenly found herself heartbroken and alone in London with their two teenage children. Because of the craziness of it all, she let things slide and the cupboards were bare. So she had made the decision to drive to Devon, even though she knew it was frowned on, but where they had a holiday home and where she knew there was loads of food in the big freezer. But they had arrived the day before and discovered that the farmhouse had been burgled. Everything had gone from the freezer and half the stuff from the pantry. She would have tried to get back to town, but there was no longer any fuel in the car, so they were stuck. No food, no petrol, no logs for the fire. The thieves had even taken those. And no husband. For the third time in five minutes, George Haywood heard his own voice speaking words which were all but foreign to him. Listen to me. I know about all this social distancing and all, so you won't want me getting any closer to you. But why don't I come back to this house of yours and help you to get sorted? I'm a forester, and I live and work alone on the other side of Dartmoor. I haven't seen anyone for weeks, so I can guarantee I haven't got the virus. If you like, I can share the food I've got here in my rucksack and probably get some more. <laughs> I can certainly get the firewood sorted, and then I can help you to make some sort of plan. They walked together for half a mile along the stream to an old thatched farmhouse. And so it was that George began a week-long stay with the Meyer family. The teenage kids, Ferdinand and Louisa, looked scared at first, but George didn't take much notice of them, and before long he had swung into action. He discovered that the house had a good tool shed. Fortunately, that had not been burgled, and so he found some plywood and boarded up the smashed windows where the thieves had broken into the house. The shed also contained a chainsaw with a full tank of fuel, and George took it to where he'd seen a dead apple tree. When he brought back a dozen wheelbarrow loads of logs, Dina invited him in for a cup of tea. She brought tea bags and milk from London, so at least they had that to keep them going for a while. One of the first things George saw as he entered the house was a green metal gun cupboard. Its door was badly dented where the thieves had tried to open it. But when Dina gave him a key, he couldn't believe his luck. There were two shotguns, and an expensive, high-velocity rifle with a telescopic sight. George said to her, Now, Mrs. Meyer, you'll be glad you invited me back. One thing you and the kids won't be doing is going hungry. I hope you're not a vegetarian. It had already been settled that George should spend the night in the late Mr. Meyer's composing room, which was a large loft area above a converted barn. There was a bed and a wash basin, so George could make himself at home. As it grew darker outside, the forester got up from his armchair and said he'd better be going. He disappeared, taking the lurchers and the high-velocity rifle with him. 
The next day, Dina went out to the barn to take him a cup of tea and was horrified to see the carcasses of two wild deer hanging from the rafters. George spent the day fixing broken bits and pieces around the farm. He butchered the deer carcasses and then bagged up the joints to put them in the empty freezer. They had a banquet that night. And the following day, George wandered across the hills to a big farm and did good business, bartering venison joints for eggs and milk and a few other essentials. George transformed the world of the grief-stricken Meyer family. And they transformed him. Every evening, he played board games with the three of them. Ferdinand and Louisa's initial fear of George melted away, and now they actually seemed to like him. And he liked them. Not once did George think of Dina as an object of desire. She was in the midst of a tragedy and his whole focus was to help her, like he would have helped a sister if he had one. But he was melting, was George Haywood, and beginning to think differently. And that is how they went on for a week or more, George and Dina sometimes laughing, sometimes crying. The kids often morose and sad about their dad, but sometimes going out with George into the fresh air. In the morning, he taught them which wild herbs to pick and which to avoid. In the afternoon, they fished and chopped wood. And each night, they all cooked together in the big kitchen. George rang his mother again, and she told him she was frightened because there was a lot of coronavirus in her village now, and people had stopped bringing her supplies. So George told the Meyer family he'd have to be going the next day. And they were all very sad about that, which prompted him to leave Wynne, the big female lurcher, with them. She was a wise old dog, and she could help look after them. Dina hugged the man she called our saviour when it came time for him to leave the next morning. Thank you, George, she whispered. I will never be able to repay you for all you've done. You will promise to come back, won't you, as soon as you can? Then she kissed him on the cheek, and that place burned on his face all the way to West Anstey. As he reached the eastern limb of Exmoor National Park, George began to feel a little strange. It was a big climb up over Weddon Cross, and as he walked, he realised he was sweating more than usual. By the time he'd gone down the Avil Valley and reached the flanks of Croydon Hill, he was coughing. But it was when he climbed past the rear of Dunster Deer Park and was at last looking down at his home parish of Carhampton that George Hayward knew for certain that he was coming down with Covid. He'd obviously picked it up from the Myers, who'd been in London at the height of the outbreak lair. His head was spinning, and crossing the stream at Nutcombe Bottom, he slipped and fell into the water. He wasn't hurt, but he discovered that his old phone had fallen into the water and it was now dead and useless. Somehow he got over Aller Hill and, staggering wildly, he made his way down the old packhorse trail to the village. His mind was confused, but one thing he focused on was the fact that with the virus he couldn't possibly see his mother. 
he remembered that down near the beach at Kermore, there was an old World War II pillbox. They had used it as a den when they were kids. And it was the only place George knew where he could find some sort of shelter without passing on the virus. If it hadn't been for Billy the Lurcher, George Haywood would have died in that old concrete fortification. But as it was, he lay in its small, bare interior for three days before help arrived. His lurchers had been silent for years. They never barked or whimpered. But on day three, Billy went up on the pillbox roof and howled like a wolf. A local dog walker saw him. The police were called because the man suspected something was amiss and George's life was saved. He was taken into Musgrove Hospital in Taunton for a week. Then they took him back to Minehead Hospital where he lay in bed for another seven days. After another fortnight, he was fit enough and clear enough of the virus to move over to Carhampton with his mother though it wasn't until the end of June that George was well enough to take short walks to the village shop. By mid-August, he had the strength to take Billy down to the beach, although the dog wouldn't go anywhere near the pillbox. All the time he was recuperating, George thought about the Meyer family. He worried and wondered how they were surviving and he cursed the moment he'd slipped into the stream and broken his phone. Dina would not be able to contact him, and he couldn't remember their mobile numbers. In fact, there was a lot he couldn't remember. Time and again he lay on his mother's sofa, trying to retrace his footsteps back across Exmoor and down into the great central Vale of Devon. But no matter how hard he concentrated, he could not remember the location of the Myers farm, that whole part of his life had become a blur. He formed a plan to go and find them as soon as he felt well enough and the lockdown was over. He'd take a bus to Taunton, catch a train down to Plymouth and get a taxi back to his cottage and his pickup truck. Then he'd go to Mid-Devon, where he'd keep looking until he found that valley somewhere near the Two Moors Way. Early one morning in September... George and Billy were down on the shore when a farmer in a tractor working in a field just inland stopped and shouted across. Here, George. There was some posh woman asking for you in the Luttrell Arms last night. Nice lady. She's staying up there with her two kids and they say they've got one of your dogs. The meeting between George and the family an hour later was joyous. Later in the evening, he and Dina went for a walk and fiercely she scolded the gaunt thin forester. There's one thing that is never going to happen again, George Hayward. I am never letting you disappear on another of your walkabouts, even if it is to see your own mother. Three months later, Simon Green was standing at the door of his office when he saw a brand-new Range Rover pull into the car park. What Simon could not quite take in was the person climbing out of the Range Rover. It was his old friend George Haywood. But what on earth had happened to him? 
The two had known one another for most of their lives. But in all that time, Simon had never seen him dressed in anything but dirty overalls or forest gear. Now, walking towards him was a man in smart jeans and a new-looking jumper. But there was something else that was different and surprising. This new George Hayward was doing something unusual with his face. He was smiling. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, To travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. Nevertheless, arrive we have, at the end of this August outing of Look Here. We hope you enjoyed the journey, but now at its close, it has to be goodbye from Christine. Goodbye. From Barney. Goodbye. From Evelyn. Goodbye. And from me, Stephen. Goodbye. Goodbye.